This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peace Street Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, we are looking this morning at verses 15 through 26. You've got the uh, Pew Bibles, you can find this passage on page 659. We've been studying in this series, we've been in this Advent season, Christmas in Jeremiah, we've looked at Jeremiah's prophecies of a new king, and then last week of a new joy. And this week of a new hope, all of which, of course, are ultimately fulfilled and brought about through the birth of Christ and his subsequent ministry, his death and resurrection, and an even greater fulfillment, of course, at his return. So let us give our attention this morning to Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. This I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray, Father, that as we study it in this early hour of the day, that your spirit would be our light to it, our guide to it. Pray, Father, that 
in your light, we would see light. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Not all of the Christmas story is pretty or heartwarming. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, he tells us about a terrible event that is known as the slaughter or the massacre of the innocents. You will know how the wise men came to visit the newborn king, and they were asking where this king was to be found. And King Herod caught wind of this, and he interviewed the wise men, and they said, well, of course, it's in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy of old. And the king, Herod, said to them, well, when you go and find him, come and report back to me, because I want to go worship him too. Of course, Herod had no such uh, intentions. His only desire was to snuff out this potential threat to his own power. And so an angel warns the wise men not to return to Herod, but to go home by another route. And when Herod realizes that he was tricked, he's absolutely furious. And he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem with orders to put to death Every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity, every male child, two years old and younger. And Matthew reports that this dreadful event had been prophesied long before. He says, this was this thus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. Of course, you'll recognize that prophecy from Jeremiah as from our text this morning. You see, Mary's little boy and her heart was spared. But other mothers of Bethlehem suffered untold grief because of Herod's cruelty. Rachel was weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. But who was Rachel? Well, Rachel, of course, in the Old Testament was Jacob's wife, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. Rachel was his wife. And we read in the scriptures, particularly in uh, Genesis 35, how Rachel, with great difficulty, gave birth to a son. And with her dying breath, she named him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, son of the right hand. Rachel was also the mother of Joseph. And from Joseph, as you read in Genesis and how all of that unfolded with Joseph going to Egypt, uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who became two of the dominant tribes of the northern territory of Israel after they divided And so Rachel, in a sense, was mother both of Judah and the south, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, and of the ten tribes of the north. In a sense, she was the mother of them all, at least in a representative way. And so you could say that as Jeremiah takes up her name here, Rachel weeping for her children, both the northern tribes that had already been taken into exile, the southern tribes that would soon be taken into exile, and some had already been taken into exile. She was weeping over this calamity that had become uh, the, the lot of her children. And so 
Matthew, when he thinks of these mothers of Bethlehem weeping for their slain children, it reminds him of Rachel. It reminds him of this passage. And in fact, he sees in this passage a prophecy that was fulfilled in those events. Well, certainly no one, no mother especially, could be unmoved by Rachel. Uh, no mother has ever lost a newborn child or suffered a miscarriage or buried a baby or even laying awake worrying about a wayward child. And certainly no one can remain unmoved by the fact that we live in a world where not just this event, but many events like this, and even worse, have happened and happen in our own day and have yet to happen in this world in which we live. And you know, it's easy and even understandable to resign ourselves to such things such barbaric acts of cruelty, and to say, well, that's just this, this world in which we live. It's a world of evil. It's a world that's dark, and we live in a world that ultimately is without hope. Well, it's here that Jeremiah interjects actually a word of hope, offers us hope, as he goes on, talking from verse 15, into other uh, thoughts that the Lord has given to him, that he speaks. And, and we find in this passage uh, that, in fact, there are three reasons Jeremiah gives for hope. And let us look at those in these next few minutes. First reason for hope is this. Grief does not have the last word. Grief does not have the last word. We see this in verses 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15, Rachel this symbolic and figurative mother of Israel and Judah was weeping because her children had been and were being carried away from their land into exile. A voice is heard in Ramah. Well, Ramah, if you read in Jeremiah 40, verse 1, it was apparently a staging place for the exile. As the Babylonians took Jerusalem, took people out, they would apparently bring them to Ramah just to the north. And in that place, um, we'd prepare them, gather them for the long trek to Babylon. And so there's this weeping taking place there, which probably was not far, at least, and maybe the exact spot where Rachel had died in childbirth. As she was going from Bethel to Bethlehem, that could have been, could have been very well where she died. And so there's this weeping. You think about the misery of that place. People are brought out of Jerusalem. They're in chains. They are uh, uh, being forced to leave their homes. Families are perhaps being split up, separated purposefully, uh, inadvertently, accidentally. Uh, it may have been the last time mother and father saw each other. It may have been the last time the child saw their parents. We don't know. But the misery was certainly intense as they were being prepared to be taken away forcibly to a foreign land. And Rachel is weeping, and she refuses to be comforted. There's nothing that will still her tears, nothing that will dry her tears for her children, because they are no more. But it's into that that the Lord points out there's more to the story. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Yes, it is a, a terrible situation that is taking place, and yet the Lord says, dry your tears, 
Don't keep on weeping forever because the day will come when I will bring your children back to their land. You see, Rachel, the symbolic mother of Israel, is not to weep as one without hope. At some point, she must stop refusing, but allow herself to be comforted by this truth, by these words from the Lord. You know, the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry says, We are not forbidden to mourn in such a case. Allowances are made for natural affection, but we must not suffer our sorrow to run to an extreme, to hinder our joy in God, or take us off from our duty to him. Though we mourn, we must not murmur. You see, that's the position the Christian is in today. Yes, we live in a world where horrible things happen that we know of, either at a distance through various media, or maybe to people that we know personally, or maybe even to us, ourselves. And natural affection is there. We, we do mourn the loss of someone that we care about. And yet, it's not hopeless. Uh, some of you may be fans of Harlan Coben and his books, Mystery Novels. Uh, I enjoy them, but there's a striking note of hopelessness in those books in the face of death. There's a, there's a darkness there a hopelessness in the face of death, in the face of loss. And yet in reality, particularly for the Christian, that's not the case. We do grieve at the terrible events that happen in this world and to us. And yet we allow the Lord to comfort us. We allow the Lord to dry our tears. Paul himself speaks to this, to the church in Thessalonica, who wondered, what should we think of those who have died now in the Lord? And Paul talks about them. He says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Who are those others? Well, those are the ones outside of Christ. Paul says, you're not to grieve as they grieve. You are to grieve, but not as they grieve, not in this hopeless, despairing kind of way. You see, the greatest source of grief that we face in this world is death, that permanent separation, that ultimate display of the power of the principle of sin in this world. And yet Christ has defeated death. Death has been conquered. Jesus went into the grave and came out. And so as Christians, even in the face of things like the massacre of the innocents and their equivalent today, we may grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope because grief for the Christian does not have the last word. That's the first comfort that we find here. The first reason for hope that Jeremiah offers. Another reason for hope he offers here, and that is that even in the trials, the difficulties we face, seeing them as we do, the hand of God's providence, who allows nothing to come into our lives apart from his good purpose and his will, and maybe even his intentional chastening or disciplining of his children, we recognize this and have hope because of this. God's discipline does in us It's good work. God's discipline does in us its good work. Look with me at verse 18. God's discipline, first of all, helps us recognize our true condition. Look at verse 18a. The Lord says, I have heard Ephraim grieving, and now he quotes Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the largest of the northern tribes, sometimes used to refer to Israel in general. The Lord says, I've heard Ephraim grieving. Here's what he said. You have disciplined me 
And I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Some of you have been in men's Bible study, studying a book called Broken Down House. And one of the comments that uh, Paul Tripp, the author of the book, has made on more than one occasion is, you are not as godly as you may think yourself to be. That's almost true by definition. Typically, the more godly you are, the more conscious you are of your own sins and faults, therefore the less godly you think yourself to be. If you think yourself to be pretty godly, almost by definition, you're not. Uh, but that's the truth. We, we don't see ourselves as we really are. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, to use Paul's language, even in our attainments in our Christian growth. But when God disciplines us, when God chastens us, as he did the tribes of Israel in, in, in tearing them from their land, just as he promised to do if they were disobedient, he's disciplined, he's chastening. And in that, he exposes us to see ourselves, exposes us so that we see ourselves as we really are, more like we really are. Ephraim says, I was like an untrained calf, not an overly flattering picture that he has of himself. It reminds me of Psalm 73, where Asaph is, is wondering and even complaining why the wicked seem to have it so easy and the righteous seem to suffer so much. And he's, he's really wrestling with that. It bothers him a great deal. And he says, it troubled me until I came into the presence of God, until I came into the sanctuary. And then I saw the end of the wicked. And then he feels very bad about himself. He says, uh, I was like a brute beast before you, God. You see, God's discipline serves this purpose. It helps us recognize our true condition. I was like an untrained calf. I was like a brute animal. In being so unaware of myself and what's going on. So God's discipline does its good work in helping us recognize our true condition. It helps us to regret our sinful behavior. Look at uh, the end of verse, uh, or look at rather at verse 19. Ephraim says, After I had turned away, turned away from the Lord, I relented. And after I was instructed, instructed by what? Instructed by God's discipline in being sent into exile. I slapped my thigh. Now, typically in the scriptures, you know, beating the breast is kind of the, the general expression of grief. This one's more obscure, but it too is, is, is an expression of dismay. And maybe you've done it. Yeah, you realize you've messed up and you just hit your leg. You know, that's what he says I'm doing here. After I was instructed, I slapped my thigh, you know, kind of hit your forehead, that kind of thing. What was I thinking? I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. God's discipline works in us to, to recognize our behavior, but then to regret it, to see what foolishness it was, especially in the light of God's holiness. And also, it helps us to return to the Lord. Look at back at verse 18. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Now remember, part of the problem, a huge part of the problem, was that Israel was worshiping pagan gods, pagan deities. But here he says, bring me back, recognizing the needs for God's grace. You bring me back, Lord, and I will serve you. You are the Lord my God. You see, God's discipline is not meant to produce hopelessness, ultimately. But to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, the writer to the Hebrews comments on this when he says no discipline at the time is pleasant. It's painful, but 
it produces in us the peaceful fruits of righteousness. God can use even the most traumatic, even the most horrific events to cultivate your heart, to develop righteousness in you, to develop Christ-likeness in you, replacing hopelessness with hope that God is going to work even through those worst things to prepare you for himself, to draw you closer to himself, to make you more like his son. And Jeremiah offers that as a reason for hope as he speaks to us here. That grief doesn't have the last word, that God's discipline does its good work in us. And then in the third place, a third reason for hope, that the Lord's love is, is with us in and through whatever chastening, whatever suffering this world might have in store for us. You see, we tend to think just the opposite. This is bad. This is happening to me. Has God abandoned me? Does he not love me? Does he not care about me? Well, for you, dear child of God, just the opposite. Look at what the Lord says, beginning in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. The Lord spoke against Ephraim, spoke against his people because of their sin and their waywardness. But he says, I remember him. In the Bible, it just it doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I, you know, his face looks vaguely familiar. I think I remember. To remember means to bring to bear everything that's there in that relationship. When God remembers his covenant, it doesn't mean he had a, had a lapse of memory and, oh, yeah, it came back to him. But he is going to apply all the fullness of it that he's promised to do. Well, the same thing here. I remember him still. I haven't forgotten him. I haven't abandoned him. I haven't moved on to other things. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. You parents know what this is like. When you discipline your child, you may be very frustrated. You may be very upset with something they've done. And even in discipline, your heart goes out to them. You're hurt for them. Well, that's what the Lord is saying here. His heart goes out to us. And notice, it's almost a Hansel and Gretel situation. Verse 21, even as they're going into exile, he says, be sure to mark the way back. Set up road markers. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Why? Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. Remember, the Lord's purpose in exile was to purify and chasten his people. His people, as they went out, were spiritual adulterers. But the Lord brings them back, and he says, Return, O virgin Israel, return to these, your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Now, that's a difficult expression. The only thing we know for sure is it indicates something new or unusual. Various suggestions have been given, everything from women defending men uh, to indicate something new or unusual, to uh, Mary bearing the Son of God in her womb, which seems to me a bit of a stretch, although it was true that she did. Uh, it probably has something to, here to do with that the weak will overcome, the, the tribes in, in, in exile will be brought out of this strong foreign power that the Lord would defeat them and bring his people back home. And that's the point. The Lord has created a new thing on the earth. Instead of just going out into exile, he will bring them back. He will reverse what happened. 
His heart goes out to us. He's preparing a new home for us. The Lord's love is with us, and he's preparing a home. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. In other words, they're going to say one day, home, sweet home. The Lord's going to bring them back. They're going to bless their dwellings, their cities, their place when he restores them. The Lord's love is seen that his heart goes out to his people. He's preparing a home for us and bringing us back to it. And this is true for the Christian. We know the love of God even in the deepest suffering. And the Lord certainly is looking forward to that day when he brings us home. We will be with him in glory. And we'll bless that place as the home where we were meant to be, where we want to be. But then also his love is seen through the chastening in that he is sufficient for us. Look at verse 25. I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. You see, the Lord says that there will be no more longings, no more heartache, no more heartbreak. I will be sufficient for them, that I will bless them, that I will replenish every sorrowing, languishing soul. And you know, you get it, you get to the end of the scriptures, and that's the end of the story, where we're with the Lord in glory where there is no more sickness and there's no more death and the Lord wipes away every tear. Have you ever had a dream where you wake up and you regretted waking up because the dream was so good? Well, Jeremiah has that experience here. He says, If this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. You almost get the impression that this was something unusual. And especially with Jeremiah, it may well have been. Because Jeremiah was used to receiving bad news. The burden of bad news for his people. And here he has the joy of good news. And he wakes up and says, boy, best night's sleep I've had in a long time. And it was good. It was a good night's rest because he had good news. And it is good news, especially to those who mourn. You see, Rachel was grieving. Her heart was broken. Her tears are real. We grieve today with true broken hearts and real tears. You see, the Lord doesn't merely say to Rachel, there, there, everything's going to be all right. No, no. He says, there, there, I'm making everything all right. He says the same thing to us. You know, we still see suffering in this world. We suffer ourselves and see those we love and care about suffering as well. And we may think there's no comfort. We may think there's no hope. But reality is, God is making it all better. He sent His Son into the world, born at Bethlehem. His Son died on the cross to redeem His people and to redeem His creation. And the day is coming when He returns and He will make it all perfect. And in that day, all will be right with the world. Suffering will end. And even Rachel will dry her tears. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we do have this hope in Christ, that in Christ you are making and will make everything right. Father, you will restore this world to its sinless condition and even better, Father, confirming us in a glorified state, redeemed by nothing less than the blood of Christ. Father, we hurt in this world different times and different ways, and you know that. We thank you, Father 
that you bore the death of your own son, that you might give us hope in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.